Father, uh, we confess before you that too often when we read your word or hear your word, we think of how it applies to other people and not ourselves. We think, Father, of the specks in other people's eyes and not the logs in our own eyes. And so we ask, Father, that your Holy Spirit would do a wonderful work in our midst and that you would uh, bring your word to our hearts, that you would bring your word to our hearts so that it would speak clearly to us and that as you speak to us at the, at the depth of our heart, the command center of who we are, Father, please make us disciples of Jesus who are gripped by the gospel and learning to live for your glory and not our own. And all this we ask in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Andrew, Andrew and I have slightly different ideas about how we like to have the table set, so... I do it here for the sermon. Everything else is the way Andrew likes it. Um, you know, there's things that happen in the world that you just can't make up. Uh, on the 13th of March, uh, I think that was Wednesday, um, Iran, uh, by a lot of sta- a lot, one of the scales I saw, there was rating how different countries treat women. Out of 149 countries, Iran finished 146th out of 149. And you can't make some of this stuff up, but on, on uh, March the 13th, Iran was put on the human, UN Council for Women. I'm not making that up. UN Council for Women. So they are now part of the body that gets to judge uh, how different nations are treating women. And it's and, in terms of not being able to make this stuff up, the same day that they got named to the UN Human Rights Commission that looks after the concerns of women, that same day, they sentenced, and I don't, if those of you know how to pronounce Iranian names, I ask your forgiveness if I get this wrong, Nazrin Sotute, uh, a woman lawyer, the same day they got uh, put on the UN Human Rights Committee uh, for Women, they sentenced this lawyer, this woman lawyer, to an extra 10 years in jail. And her, her crime was that she was protesting the laws in Iran that forced all women to wear the hijab. <laughs> so the same day they get put onto the Human Rights Council, they do that. You can't make this stuff up, can you? I mean, that's just, it's just one of those things you just shake your head at what goes on. The, um, the fact of the matter is that as long as there's been human beings, and I could give Canadian examples, but the problem is, you know, we've already talked about Canadian examples a little bit over the last couple of weeks, and uh, it could make it look like I was maybe trying to play political favorites, which I'm not. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that issues of religious violence and just the whole desire for power and how power can corrupt is a constant human problem and condition. And the biblical passage that we're going to look at today is directly connected and speaks directly in to this uh, problem of religious violence, uh, the problem of the abuse of power. So it'd be a great help to me if you uh, turned your Bibles and opened them to John chapter 18. And uh, we're going to look at that, not only the text I read, but the part that comes after it. Um, when we do narrative things like this, I often have the text up on the screen, so you will, you will be able to read it by looking on the screen. But, you know, there's something special about having your own Bible and uh, being able to make notes or comments or whatever in your own Bible as you go along. And, uh, and so we're looking at John. Uh, it's John chapter 18, verse 1. And um, John is one of the uh, four ancient uh, eyewitness biographies of Jesus. Um, 
John uh, mentions himself here but he, uh, in the story, but he'll refer to himself as the other disciple. He never names himself. And uh, in the flow of the gospel, Jesus, John spends more time with how Jesus speaks to his disciples uh, on the night before he's, um, before he's betrayed. That four, six, eight hours, um, John spends a long time talking about what Jesus says to his disciples. And uh, when we begin here at verse 1, we're catching up with Jesus has left the upper room, and, uh, and the story continues on, and it's verse 1, and it goes like this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And just sort of want to pause here for a second. Uh, the actual original word for brook is, a, a, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, apologies, it's a wadi. Uh, a very uh, Middle Eastern thing, a wadi. And a, a wadi is a spring or a, a small river that uh, only erupts into water uh, occasionally throughout the year. Usually in the rainy season, there'll be a, a stream or there shall be some water there. The rest of the year, there's nothing. And that's what Jesus is actually uh, crossing. And the other thing, uh, which is sort of is just, we're going to talk about this more in a couple of weeks, but uh, out of all of the gospel writers, John is the one who emphasizes the most that this is all taking place in a garden. Uh, John is going to mention three times the significance of the garden. He's going to mention it here where Jesus is betrayed is in a garden. He's going to describe that where he's, Jesus is crucified is in a garden. And he's going to be the one who says that when Jesus is buried, it's in a garden. And of course, for Jewish and Christian readers, Genesis 3, human beings were put in a garden. Adam and Eve fall in a garden. There's this very clear literary connection which John is making to our, um, to, uh, to Adam and Eve and the entrance of evil into the world. So evil and sin and death and brokenness and betrayal, uh, and denial and abandonment and failure, all of these things enter into the human condition in a garden, and it is in a garden that God will provide a remedy for the human condition. We continue in verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed Jesus, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And just sort of pause for a second. Um, it's not obvious in the English translation, but uh, in the original language, John uses a technical word for band of soldiers. Uh, it's actually, he's using the technical word for a group of 600 soldiers. It's called a cohort. And it, he's not saying that all 600 soldiers came. Um, you know, if in Ottawa you said that the fire department put out the fire, uh, it doesn't mean that every fireman went to put out the fire. It just means the fire department put out the fire. And what John is using here is using the technical Roman term for a, a very large group of Roman soldiers, and he's signaling to the readers that this means that there's been prior collusion between Pilate and the, uh, and the, uh, the group of people who control the temple. They have conspired in secret because there's no way that the people who control the temple would be able just, just, you know, 
<laughs> the, bishop, the, the bishop of Ottawa couldn't go up to CFB Petawawa and say, could we borrow a hundred soldiers because we want to go do something? No, they just say, they say, get out of here, right? They don't have the power authority. So John here at the original language, he's signaling a conspiracy collusion between the Roman authorities and those who control the Jewish high temple. Uh, verse 4, uh, continue on. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward, came forward, walked towards them, and said to them, Whom do you seek? I just want to pause there again. Uh, it's very, very interesting here what John is doing. So it's very interesting in two ways. The first one is, if you go back and read the Gospel of John from the beginning till now, and uh, it's, it's made a bit easier if you have a Bible like mine where the, the words of Jesus are in red. It makes it easier to figure out certain things. But if you go and look and see in John's Gospel, what is the very first thing that Jesus ever says recorded in John's Gospel? It is, what do you seek? Very, very first words that Jesus says. It isn't a declaration. It's a question. What are you seeking? And it's really a very, very interesting question to every human being, isn't it? Like, what are you seeking? You could ask that of, you could ask that of Trudeau, you could ask that of Andrew Scheer, you could ask it of a street person, you could ask of every, like, what are you seeking? What are your idols? What's driving you? It's the very, very first words that Jesus says. It, the same thing can also be translated as whom you, whom you are seeking. It's sort of a bit better to translate it as what. And so Jesus asks virtually the identical question of his enemies. Whom are you seeking? So just as the beginning of his ministry, his public ministry and his open teaching, it's going to be prefaced with this idea of like, okay, as you're coming to deal with me, and you might think that you're in control, and you might just think that you can be acquiring information, or it's just all about power, uh, Jesus asks a heart question in all of your interactions with me. What are you really seeking? Because what we're seeking is going to have a profound effect and impact on how we deal with people. That's what's going to go on in the story. As the story goes on, we'll see that the soldiers aren't seeking, the soldiers and the police aren't seeking justice. We're going to see that Annas and Pilate aren't seeking justice. That they're seeking power. They're seeking other types of things. They're not seeking truth. If they were seeking truth, there'd be a whole pile of things that they would do very different. But what they really are seeking is power. And because what they're really seeking is power, personal power, it blinds them to truth and blinds them to the value of human, blinds them to a whole pile of other things. And so it's a really important thing for us to think about this. Uh, there are many, some of us here who have very, very little power. Um, but all of us have some degree of power. Maybe it's a parent who has power over their child or you have power in your group of friends, some type of authority or influence and the question always is, how are you actually using that? There's another thing which is really important for us to just to note here. It's not an important part of the story, but it's an important thing for us just to pause on. Um, it's very hard to be out Christian today. I, I love that term from the, the gay uh, lexicon of being out. And it's very hard to be an out Christian today, if we think about it. And one of the things which is so wonderful about this text is that Jesus, he knows that he's going to die. He knows that these people are his enemies, but he walks towards them. He walks towards his enemies. 
And in some small way, but an important way, Jesus is modeling something here which should be very important to us, that we should be willing to be out Christians and that God doesn't want us to live in fear. He doesn't want us to live in our, in our city in fear, in this world in fear. He wants us to be people who walks toward the other, who walks towards other people, who walks towards situations rather than hiding from them and walking away. He wants us to have a type of just confidence in God and love for people and concern for people that we walk towards them, but not live in fear. Well, what happens um, next is very, very interesting. So Jesus, uh, verse 4, Jesus asked them this question, whom do you speak? Whom do you seek? In verse 5, they said, answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with him. And just pause here again for another second. So it's not obvious here to us, maybe. Some of you have heard me say this before, but it's an important part of this text. Is that when they, so Jesus said, whom do you seek? And they don't say, uh, Rabbi, we're coming to see Jesus the rabbi, or we're coming to see Jesus the prophet. They say, we're coming to see, we're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, and that's a put down. would be just the same as if uh, one of us, uh, if, if you went to Manhattan in New York City, or you went to Washington, or you went to Hollywood, and somebody came and introduced you, uh, we'll use me as an example, this is George from Brudenell. Okay, none of you know where Brudenell is. If you do come and speak to me afterwards because you're a bit weird or you must be from that region. Brudenell is a spot on a map between nowhere and nowhere. Tremor is a spot on the map between no, nowhere and nowhere. Clontarf, spot on the, I used to have points there, by the way, as a, as a, as a minister. So what they're saying is this is Jesus of Nowheresville. This is Jesus who is unimportant because he's from Nazareth. And nothing good comes from Nazareth, nothing important. It's, it's nowhere. It's Hicksville. It's a, it's a hillbilly. Um, he's not properly educated, doesn't have the right connections. Who are we looking for? We are looking for Jesus the nobody. That's what they're basically saying in response, uh, to, to who they're looking. To, and Jesus, by the way, when all the, there's three times in this text where Jesus says, I am he, but literally he says, I am. Now, it, it can mean I am he, but it can also mean the divine name. That's how he answers three times, I am. I am, I am, I am. And the text makes a, a big point of saying that Jesus, Judas, who betrayed them, was standing with them. So the disciples are behind Jesus in the garden. Judas, uh, Jesus walks towards his enemies. He walks across the room, so to speak. And uh, his enemies are all there, maybe gathered around. And, uh, and they say, who, Jesus says, whom do you seek? Uh, they respond with uh, Jesus the nobody. Uh, Jesus says, I am he. Judas is with them. And then the next thing is very, very interesting. Verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. I don't know how many of you have experience in the charismatic world, but charismatics would say they just all got slain in the spirit. That's what's happened. Jesus says, I am. Boom. They all go down. All of them. The soldiers, the police officers, Judas, they all get knocked to the ground. The swords, the lanterns, the armor, none of it matters. Boom. 
just says who he is, and down they go. Every one of them. Now, I'm not saying that every time in a charismatic gathering somebody gets slain in the Spirit, that's an example of that. I'm not saying that. I've only had one time when I prayed for somebody and they fell down. I I have to confess, I had the feeling that they wanted to fall down, but I I don't know. Like, in heaven, I'll find out whether they wanted to fall down because it would be more spiritual or whether they actually just did. I prayed for them, and down they went. It's only happened to me once, but some people, it happens to them a lot. And I'm not saying that every time it happens, it's it's human because we can see here that Jesus does it. And and this is going to be very, very important to the rest of the story. You know, there's an old Christian saying that when Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying for us, it's not the nails that hold him to the cross, but his love for you and me. And this is seen here very powerfully in this story. Jesus just knocks them all down. How could, how could these people possibly capture Jesus and put him on the cross if he just by a mere act of his will can put them all on the ground? It helps to emphasize that whatever's going to happen is voluntary. Jesus is walking towards his suffering. He's not truly being captured. The story continues. So what happened? By the way here, this is also a very, very... One of the things which is so wonderful about the story that we don't think of often about, but this is an opportunity for Judas to repent. This is an opportunity for the soldiers to repent. This is an opportunity for the police to question what they're doing, which is the beginning of repentance. So how do they respond? Verse 7. So he asked them again. They all eventually get up. He asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of nowhere. Jesus of nowhere. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill what was spo- what he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. And just sort of pause. Why do Christians believe that the New Testament is also part of the Bible? Because when Jesus quotes the Bible, he says words. He says uh, this. Is, he'll he'll regularly say in the New Testament when he's quoting the Old Testament, he'll say this is this was to fulfill the word that was spoken. So it's a, it's a formula thing that shows that God had said it, that it has authority, and now John is applying this same thing to the words of Jesus. It's a very subtle literary thing that's showing that Jesus' words have that type of same divine authority that the Father has. Now, remember I said to you that this story speaks directly into the whole world of religious violence, It speaks to the abuse of power. That's going to become more and more clear as we go on. Jesus obviously has a type of vast, untapped spiritual authority, which is just present by his mere act of his will, that the soldiers and police officers with their their weapons and their armor can just, they just all collapse just by a mere act of his will. But Peter is human. And uh, why have spiritual power if you got a sword? It doesn't really matter in a sense what Jesus has said. I got a sword, and I'm going to fix this. And that's what happens here in verse 10. 
Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And these next words are really important. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And we're going to talk about the cup again in a, in a couple of minutes. But we have here in this text, in a very, very pithy form from Jesus, a clear rejection. The sword never advances the gospel. The sword never advances the gospel. We Christians, I mean, probably not the ones of us here in this room, but, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that if somebody says to us, well, what about this and what about that in Christian history, we have to just say, that was wrong. But we learn that it's wrong, not because we've taken Rogerian therapy or because we've learned from postmodern literary criticism or Nietzsche that everything's about power. We can just say, any Christian, like we could actually just take them, listen, any Christian throughout history or any Christian today that uses the, that uses the sword, the power of the sword to advance the, the, to advance the Christian faith, to advance the gospel, all you have to do is look here at verse 11 of John chapter 18. Like if, if we were listening to that, we would know that you don't do that. That it, the power of the sword does not advance the gospel. This, by the way, isn't an argument for pacifism amongst the nations. It's just an argument for the fact that the sword doesn't advance the gospel. And some of you might be wondering, why doesn't it mention here that Jesus heals the man's ear? And I'm just going to say this. You just, I mean, we can have some conversations about this over the, today and over the next couple of weeks. Uh, there's no fundamental contradiction between the four different biographies of Jesus about how they picture what happens in that evening and over the next a few hours. John doesn't just, he just chooses not to tell that particular detail of the story. He has his own particular way that he's trying to tell the story. And you can go back and you can put them all together. There's lots of different scholars who've combined all the different things. But what we're listening to is we're listening to John's account. And one of the things that John wants to really emphasize is this whole problem of power and how power bends people out of shape. Because we're going to see in a moment that this very, very same guy who's all emboldened to take his sword and attack somebody within a few moments when some young snippet of a woman says, by the way, aren't you a disciple of Jesus? Completely and utterly cowers before her. Because of all of the idols that we seek, and power is a huge idol that we seek, it always has feet of clay. It always has feet of clay. It almost always just makes us paranoid and it makes us worried. And as we see time and time again throughout human history, sometimes people who have the greatest power just somehow or another make the dumbest mistakes and the weakness in the most unlikely of all places. And that's going to be communicated in the form of this story as we continue. So verse 12 So the band of the soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. In the original language, the word captain, uh, John has correctly identified the correct military term for a person who is in charge of a cohort in, in Roman military terminology for that time period. He uses the right military technical term. Verse 13, so they capture him. 
Uh, and first they lead him, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, uh, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. See how there's this constant language of the problem of power? What they really mean is we all know that what the people really need is people like us to lead them. (laughs) And as long as there's people like us who are in power and authority, well, that's how the people thrive. We have this man, this tiresome, irksome, itinerant nobody from nowheresville. And wouldn't it be far better for the people if that irksome man was gone? And it's really interesting because John, when he records this first thing by Caiaphas, he said that Caiaphas unwittingly is actually speaking a profound truth. In fact, it is going to be far better that Jesus dies for the people, that Jesus comes to die for the people. You see, this is another thing here about this insight about the problem with power. At the end of the day, God is always only working on plan A. God doesn't have plan B, C, D, E, F. He doesn't say, oh, dang, they captured Jesus. I guess I better come up with another plan. It's not like watching your typical thriller, uh, where in your typical thriller, something goes... um, I just started watching this Netflix film about retired uh, army rangers wanting to steal a drug lord's money. And of course, halfway through the movie, there's a problem with the helicopter. That doesn't describe the Gospels or God. He never has. That's no spoiler alert, by the way. That You, you expect that there's going to be some problem that goes on in the movie, uh, in a movie like that. But God never is sort of working on dealing with curveballs that come his way, and he has to have a different thing. And so what we see here is that, that what that means is this. There's two fundamentally different ways that God uses us. He uses us as his friend, or he uses us as his tool. See, he uses us as his friend when we submit to him, when we say, Lord, may you guide and direct my day today. Lord, Could you give me a chance where I can bear witness to you today? Lord, can you show me in the office how I can pray for people? Lord, there's a situation in the office. They want to do something which is wrong, and I don't know how to deal with that. I know I can't do it. I just give it into your hands. Can you either give me the the courage and the strength to not go along with it, or could you just work it so that they realize either that they shouldn't do it or, you know, and whatever, and we pray into it, and God uses you in that way, and he's using you as his friend. But other times he uses you, but he's using you as his tool. And as we see throughout the entire story, Caiaphas, who is the high priest, ironically, his relationship with God is like this. It is like this. But it doesn't mean that God never uses him, but he doesn't use him the same way that he uses a man or a woman whose posture to God is like this. Who is now being used as his friend. And what uh, the text, uh, those who know a little bit about the history uh, know that Annas uh, is technically not the uh, high priest right then. He was the high priest. He was the patriarch. 
This just comes right out of power and politics. Annas was the high priest. He was deposed by the Romans. But he continued to be the power behind the throne. Five of his sons became high priest. And Caiaphas is his son-in-law. And so for an extended period of time, they might be somebody technically who's the high priest, but there's the power behind the throne. The one who actually exercises the real power. And that's Annas. And he wants to see Jesus. And so the authorities don't bring him first to the Sanhedrin. They don't bring him to Caiaphas. They don't bring them, they don't bring Jesus to lawful authority. They bring him to the power that is controlling the temple for their own ends. The Bible is a constant critique of how religion is used to further your own power and interest. It is a constant critique of those who like to advertise in their business listings that they're evangelicals so that people who are Christians will go to their businesses and they can get away with charging more. Or on the other hand, those of us who go looking for a Christian business so they will be, we can try to force them to charge us less. That's never happened to a single person in this room, I'm sure. (laughs) But it is a constant critique of the use of religion, in particular the use of Christianity, to line your own pocket and make yourself powerful. So Jesus, uh, sorry, verse verse 13 again, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And then in verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Another disciple. It's John referring to himself. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door, So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? Complicated, but aren't you one of his disciples? Here's this big, strong fisherman brandishing a sword half an hour, 20 minutes earlier. And between the lowly servant girl who's stuck at the door in the middle of the night, he says, I am not. I am not. Verse 18, now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. And some of you might know this, some of you might not. There's only two places in the entire New Testament where a coal fire is mentioned. Here... And after Jesus' resurrection, when he reinstates Peter, you might remember, we'll see the story in a couple of weeks, that Jesus has died, he's risen from the dead. The disciples now know that Jesus has risen from the dead. They've done some fishing, they need to make a few bucks. And as they're doing their fishing, they see a man uh, on the beach, and he has a fire, and, uh, and Peter recognizes it's Jesus, and they go there, and it's a famous story. Um, so Jesus, Peter's coming in, dripping wet out of the water, and they see Jesus, and there's a charcoal fire, and the same man who denies Jesus three times, Peter will now be asked by Jesus three times, do you love me? 
And in John's Gospel, the link of the charcoal fire is specifically the link, the denial of Jesus with the reinstate, the denial of Jesus by Peter, with Peter being reinstated. So verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus, and in, in the, uh, the, lang- the order is important. Remember I said to you, what's going on in this story is a concern for power. Not for truth, but for power. And, um, and so Annas uh, is questioning Jesus about his disciples before he questions him about his teaching. Like, how many disciples do you got? What positions of authority are they in? How can we root them out? This is the language of every tyrant throughout history and every tyrant today. They want to root out the people because they're concerned with their power. Jesus, in verse 20, answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. In the original language, it's emphasized that he strikes Jesus with, on, in, on Jesus' face with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And Annas' response is to bind Jesus and send him to Caiaphas, the high priest. And then we're going to have, which John doesn't record, all of the shenanigans of going around to the different Jewish people and the different courts and the show trial and all of that other type of stuff. But what Jesus, what John is emphasizing here is that in the face of a concern for power and Annas acting in secret, and not actually having any legal type of authority to do what he's done, Jesus' response is to bear witness to the truth and say that in, in contrast to a concern to stay uh, and, and work, pull the strings behind the scene, in contrast to that, I speak openly to the people. The truth is something which I proclaim openly and public, not in secret. Just before we wrap it up, there's a few more verses. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, this is verse 25, they said to him, you also are not not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. So it's a very, very powerful story. Just to to wrap this all up, a couple of points. If you could put the first one up, it's this. Spiritual power is real because the God revealed by Jesus is real. Spiritual power is real because the God revealed by Jesus is real. You know, if we think about it in our culture, you know, I I don't generally watch horror movies, uh, and occasionally, you know what, when I, I watch some of these movies that supposedly talk about different spiritual realities, it, it, it captures something very, very telling about our culture. On one hand, in our culture, there's very, very many people who've given up on the idea that human being, that, that just cause and effect and, and, uh, you know, that there's no mystery, that there's no, nothing like, 
There's nothing like angels. There's nothing like demons. That human beings don't have any free will. That there's nothing spiritual about wor- the world or life. They've they've rejected that whole thought of mat- materialism and naturalism. They, we we read Deepak Chopra. We read um, we read those types of spiritual writers. Uh, there's a large number of people who will go and they'll call down the the, the god the moon goddess. Uh, they embrace uh, Wiccan. Uh, they uh, understand and believe that there's paranormal things. They seek out therapies and other types of things which uh, purport to touch the different spiritual powers and energies within a human being and manipulate these, those spiritual powers. And there are many people in our culture who've abandoned naturalism, they've abandoned materialism, they've turned their back on it, and they've accepted the spiritual realities that exist in the world and however it is that they've conceived of it. And, and they understand that there's some type of a spiritual longing that, that materialism and naturalism just can't account for. But the problem is, I've talked to quite a few people who are that way, but the problem is, they don't know how to, they don't know how to balance it with science. It's as if they, they live, it's as if they, without realizing it, you know, if you try to stand on a, you know those balls that some offices have that people sit on? I don't know what the name for them is, but imagine you try to stand on that ball. And there's a lot of people in our culture, they're trying to stand not only in that ball, but a second ball, which is apart from it, on a very, very slippery floor. And the fact of the matter is, is you can't put your feet on both balls on a very, very slippery floor. You're just going to keep falling all the time. And that's the problem. Like you watch a very simple pop cultural thing like Ghostbusters, talking about ghosts, yet somehow or another they can put it in a box. And they can't actually even think of how to conceive of these spiritual things without there being something material or scientific that's connected to it. The fact of the matter is, is if they completely and utterly embraced a spiritual point of view of the world, then you would have what was present in North America before science and reason came. It's what would happen in many places in Asia and in Africa, where you believe that every bush and every tree and every stream is also a god or has some type of spiritual presence. And the fact of the matter is is that science could never develop in such a world because science depends upon the ability to to do an experiment and, and, and afterwards you measure the experiment and you trust that if you have a theory and you do the experiment and you can come to conclusions, you can sort of figure out how the natural world works. But if you live in a world where every stream has a spiritual power and every tree and bush has a spiritual power, you, you, you couldn't actually do an experiment that works because you wouldn't know if the tree just, the spirit of the tree just decided to have a different result. And so we have a world where on one hand, there's this attempt to understand that there's something spiritual, and, and they try to reach out and, and, and to understand it, but at the same time, they, they keep, it's as if on one time they're on one ball with the spiritual thing, and then they jump to the other ball, which is all science. When I, there's this one fellow I've, I've talked to quite a few times, and I just keep challenging him, how is it that you can accept evolution, and at the same time expect, the, accept all these spiritual realities. And he can't. He jumps from one ball to the other back and forward. Only the gospel makes it clear. Only the Bible makes it clear. Because the Bible shows how there is a God that all things came to be not because of a what, but because of a who. That there is a God who does exist, who's created all things. 
And he created not only a physical world, but he also created angels. And we know that some angels have fallen and that they are demons. And so there's a bad spiritual reality as well. And we know that the God who created all things and made a world where science can understand things also made human beings to not just be a body, but also to have a soul and also to have a mind. That in fact, that natural laws and, and, and science and all those things cannot account for everything that goes on in a human being. That the, the idea that there is love, there is truth, there is beauty, there is goodness, there is these other things which are not physical Christianity is the only system of thought that actually allows you to understand that there can be both a natural world and a spiritual world because there is the one God who's created both and has revealed the ways that you can understand both in the proper way. And so when we see here with Jesus in the story that by the mere exercise of his will, he knocks the soldiers, he knocks the police officers down. We understand that that is real because spiritual power is real, because the God revealed by Jesus is real. Another thing which is really important, if you could put up the second point, I have to deal with this very briefly. God's grace and mercy are very real. So failure, betrayal, denial, and abandonment to not have to be final. Every single one of us have been victims of this. Some of us have been the perpetrators of it. Some of us have been the victims of somebody who's denied us or abandoned us or failed us. And others of us have, and most of us have been both, by, this, by the way. We've both failed others and we've been failed against And uh, in our culture, we just want to say, well, that's not the final word. Things can get better. But the fact of the matter is, in our culture, the final word about all of us is death. I don't know how much Al Gore's film, An Inconvenient Truth, documented inconvenient truths. But in our culture, the reality of death is the most profound inconvenient truth that our culture does not want to talk about or think about. But what we see here in the gospel it's not obvious in this story, but will be. it's hinted at for the charcoal. And those of us who know the story know the end. Is The fact of the matter is, is that the Peter's failure, his denial, his abandonment, his religious violence is not the final word about him. Because the final word about Jesus is not death, but life. He dies and tastes all there is to taste of death. And on the third day, he rises having defeated death. And he does all of this out of love for you and me. He does this knowing that we cannot make ourselves right with God, that left to ourselves, things like betrayal and abandonment are in fact the final words about us, but be in Jesus because we see the grace and mercy of God made flesh and made real, that when we put our faith and trust in him, we can begin to believe the promise in Romans 8 that all things work together for them that love him and that nothing can separate us from the love of God forever. And that the final word about us is that you have been given by God the Father to Jesus because the Father loves you and Jesus loves you. Final takeaway from this whole thing. Because Jesus loves you, your cup he drank. Because Jesus loves you, his cup he prepared for you. And... um, 
the, uh, this, the language in this story about Jesus saying, yes, I have the spiritual power that I can knock you all down just like that, but I've come to drink the cup. And it's a very, very powerful Old Testament image. And those of you who, who love fantasy things, if you just imagined that God, in a sense, was to take all of me and take me in his powerful hand and then sort of just to squeeze me. But as he squeezed me, squeezed me, the lies of my life come out. And they come out, it would look very black and foul. Everything that would come out of me in this sense, in this image, would be black and foul. And underneath the Lord has a cup. And as he squeezed me, my lies come out. My abusive power comes out. My hatred comes out. My envy comes out. My lack of forgiveness comes out. My greed comes out. We could go on and on and on. And all of them as he squeezes all of my life, from the moment of my conception to what is me and my future, my death, my, it's still in the future, but the whole of me as he squeezed me, and if you just imagine that everything that he squeezes, which is bad and foul and wrong that I have done, and all the good things that I should have done and could have done but didn't do, and they're all squeezed and they're all black and they're all foul and they all stink and they all go into a cup. And the image here is that that cup, that if at the day of judgment God gave to me to drink, it would kill me. It would be my damnation. But Jesus takes that cup and drinks it for me. He takes that cup and drinks it for me because he loves me. That's what's happening on the cross. On the cross, Jesus is drinking that cup for you and for me. And the wonderful thing, which is powerful because we're going to celebrate it right now, if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you see, and then you read 1 Corinthians, and you see the institution of the Lord's Supper, and what happens in the Lord's Supper, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus is giving the disciples a 10,000 feet in the air view of what's about to be happening with his betrayal and his death upon the cross. And in that 10,000 view thing, what Jesus is saying is that I am the one who is instituting a brand new covenant between human beings and God. And a covenant means that God will be your God. He will redeem you. He will care for you. He will love you. He will, he will provide for you. He will never let you go. He will never abandon you. He will never deny you. He is your God. You are his child by adoption and grace if you put your faith and trust in Jesus. And Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. And this cup is the blood of the new covenant shed for you. And so we see this very, very powerful image. Because Jesus loves me, my cup on the cross he drank. And because Jesus loves me and you, his cup, the cup of the new covenant, the cup of his broken body, the cup of a brand new relationship with God by adoption and grace, he prepares and offers for you. Please stand. Uh, there's any here who have not yet given their lives to Jesus, all, all you have to do is you could even just use... Actually, could you put that last point back up, Andrew? All you have to do is just say, Jesus, thank you for drinking the cup that was mine and for offering the cup that is yours. I am yours. Just say something like that, your own words. It's a conversion prayer. And, uh, and for all of us, it's just a time to marvel at God's great love for us and Jesus' great love for us. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Father, that uh, he set aside his power and divine prerogatives and his glory and out of love came and walked amongst us and lived amongst us to live the life that we could not live, to die the death that we deserve, but that if we died that death, it would doom us forever, eternal separation from you, that he lived the life we could not live, died the death that we cannot die. He did it all for us so that by faith and trust in him, we are given his life for us, and he dies for us, and we are given his life and his resurrection by faith and trust in him. Father, make us disciples of Jesus who are gripped by the gospel, learning to live for your glory. And we ask this in the name of Jesus and all God's people say, Amen. Amen.